You know, I usually do a little bit of behind-the-scenes looking into when it comes to these films. And as I was doing so, I noticed a weird pattern that started to emerge. And I had this whole theory about it. And I was going to tell you about, you know, the, the nature of how they were pushing things forward, about how Rodney Rotham was talking about how this was supposed to originally... It could be interpreted to be saying that this was originally supposed to coexist along with the MCU Spider-Man and then them just kind of distancing themselves from that and Sony saying they wanted to make their own thing and just all sorts of corporate politics stuff that I'm actually going to skip over. You know why? I swear I'm not making this up. So the day I'm recording this, today, while I was watching this film, taking notes, my news ticker went off with news about the fact that Sony and Disney had reached a deal to make two new Spider-Man films. Now, on the off chance you don't understand the significance of that, for the last several months at this point in time, when I'm recording this, uh, Sony and Disney had been walking away, and we all were sort of presuming that uh, Far From Home was the last MCU Spider-Man film. And, there, and I've actually been following that story for a bit, because it's actually fascinating and interesting to think about, and there's been all sorts of... Uh, it's been fascinating to watch. Let's just let's just summarize. And so I was prepared with this whole speech about how Sony was pushing for a certain angle so they could have their own Spider-Man films and developing the Venomverse, which is their name for it, not mine. Um, Spider-Verse 2 is already in production uh, with David Callaham as the writer and Joaquim de Santos as director. You know, I'm just, oh, God, obviously, clearly, it's so obvious that Sony's doing this to be able to have their own uh, Spider-Man to stand on its own two feet. After all, Spider-Verse and Venom both actually sold pretty well. And today, I get news that they've decided to keep working with the MCU for at least two new films. Anyways. <laughs> I do like the different logos at the intro. You know, nice touch. Uh, very quick, efficient multiverse exposition, and I like how, so Chris Pines Parker, our Parker, the 616's first Parker, let's put it that way, his references to the Raimi films directly is interesting, especially since, apparently, since this is the verse he's from, this is not really anything like the one we saw in the Raimi films. I'm pretty sure that was being done on purpose, though, because, well... This entire film is kind of tongue-in-cheek. There's literally a line in this film about, can he say that? Is that legally allowed for him to say that? So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure they were that they're just kind of doing whatever the hell they want to at this point. <clears throat> but, uh... There's a bit towards the beginning. I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. Miles comes across as confident, sure of himself, knowing his place and knowing who he is. I've always said that confidence is in many ways about knowing who you are and how that fits into the pattern. Now, I have a very boring, logical, math-based brain, but that is the general way I think of that. You see the pattern, you see how you fit into it, or how you can move through it, and that is knowing, and knowing that and being firm in that, that's the confidence, right? Now, of course, I mention that because that's going to be important later. Do me a favor and remember that. But then, of course, he goes to the new school, the preppy school, and he hates it. Oh, it's so horrible. Everyone here is just looking at me weird, and I'm completely awkward, and nobody likes me, and God, my dad just embarrassed me in front of the entire school. Why are you forcing me to say I love you, Dad? I'm just going to go ahead and talk about this now. 
Obviously, there's some very emotional, serious beats to this film. But the way in which his dad tries to force the I love you is kind of indicative of the story arc Miles himself is going through and is exemplified by the very next scene where he goes through school and doesn't fit in at all, mostly because he's trying to force it. When he was earlier, well, he wasn't forcing, he wasn't faking it. He wasn't saying, okay, I'm going to be awesome, I'm going to be awesome. He just was awesome because that's how he was. And so it flowed naturally. Speaking from personal experience, extensive personal experience, when you try to fake it, when you try to force it, it just doesn't work right. I mean, if you're really good at faking it, maybe you can manage it, and then maybe you get a career in Hollywood, but or politics. But the point is that you have this flow to things when you know what you're doing, and you're not trying to force yourself to do it, right? I'm sure a lot of you understand what I'm talking about, even if on a relatively simple and mundane scale. Um, maybe there's a job where you worked at where you're just, ah, but then you went over to another job and it's like, ah, you know, just that kind of thing. It just tetrises, it clicks better with you. I talk about this concept all the time. And it's clear that Miles here is trying to force it because he doesn't fit, because he doesn't know how to do it, and because he is so awkward and unusual about the whole thing, which itself is funny because as the end of the film shows, he's not actually, it's not that the school is bad. In fact, one of my favorite bits, I wrote down her name, Miss Caleros. She's his teacher. This is an awesome scene, and God, I wish there were more teachers like this in real life, because he's like, oh, man, I got a zero on the test. That's pretty terrible. She sees right through him. I mean, it's a fairly transparent lie, but she does see right through him. And is like, no, I'm not going to let you quit this. But rather than just being harsh or hard on him, she instead decides to reach out to him and say, I'm going to give you a special assignment that is specific to you. Reaching out to the individual to try and help that one person. That's awesome. And it helps to show how he doesn't actually not fit in so much as he's not trying to fit in and he's unsure of himself. Now, the former is obviously something that could be fixed. The latter is natural. He's new there. And that's just kind of how that works, right? After a while, you kind of become more acclimated, and people become more acclimated to you. So, I really like the approach at, at the beginning of this. Also, can I just say something weird? So, I obviously have not seen this film prior to now. This is my first time seeing it. By, by what is effectively coincidence, I didn't get a chance to see this in the theater. So, whoops. <clears throat> but but uh, I was watching this, and it's like, hey, here's Olivia. And I'm like, is that a female Doc Ock? And I just kind of brushed it off. It was, I literally just jotted a note down. I have it right here. Just Olivia? Question mark? It's just, yeah, okay, whatever. Moving on. <clears throat> so, the film, of course, starts small scale because this is mostly a character piece. And there's comedic moments as well. We get introduced to uh, Miles. We get introduced to Aaron. And we get introduced to Jeff. We also see how Jeff and Aaron are so completely diametrically opposed to each other. Jeff is way too brusque, way too harsh. You know, I, I I love him, but I'm trying to be hard on him because this is, you know, when things are tough, that's when he's got to stand up. Remember that? And, of course, Aaron, who's just like, nah, I got this, man. I'll endorse you and support you in every way without really giving him anything to stand on. Both of them obviously love Miles. That's a duh. And it could be argued neither of them are really terrible people. 
even though both of them do portray aspects of themselves that are not good. Varying levels, of course, because one of them's a supervillain and the other one's a cop, so you could, I mean, it's not really a one-to-one, -one, but you can see how both of them form two separate halves of their relationship to Miles. And thus we see Miles' own dichotomy within himself of not knowing who or what he is and what he wants to be. So he gets bitten. This is a good time to mention that I could probably spend an hour or five just talking about the visual and audio direction of this film. Every now and again I say I wish I could actually have it up back here and just go through scene by scene and point out specific moments. Now I can't because YouTube is, you know, YouTube. But um, <clears throat> as this is probably one of the bigger films this year that I wish I could go through and just gush about the design choices and directorial choices that are done throughout the film. This is an amazingly well-crafted film, and I know that's not exactly the biggest praise, but it is an astonishingly well-crafted film. I kind of want to watch it again just to enjoy the direction of both audio and visual. Um, the, the comic panels, the usage of motion while still using a static image against a three-dimensional object, which is then altered by the interactions of the three-dimensional world, and then replacing, periodically, the background with very brief snippets of 2D elements while sound effects are being utilized, and of course altered, <laughs> depending on which, I'm sure most of you already noticed it, because the most obvious example of this is, uh, oh god, I can't think of his name, the, the pig, Peter Porker, that's it, Peter Porker. But you can kind of, uh, every single sp individual Spider-Man character has their own, Spider-Person, whatever, every spider, member of the Spider-Family, let's put it that way, has their own style of sound effects, which varies based on what they're doing. And of course, when multiple of them are doing things at the same time, they kind of overlap, which actually fits rather nicely together. It's all very brilliantly done. And of course, I love the dimensional effects as well. I suppose this is a good time to mention that the Green Goblin is just, what? <laughs> Holy crap. And Pine. So I haven't really talked about Chris Pine because he's almost a cameo in this film. He is the original Parker, as I mentioned. He's... He does a good job of it. You get the... You get the impression, of course, of the severity of him. But unlike the older Parker, which we meet later, this one is still basically in his prime and fully cognizant of who and what he is. He is fully confident. He does die, of course, and that's horrible. But I bring it up because he he exudes a natural confidence of a veteran hero. He's been doing this for a decade, I believe, at this point. I, I forget the exact number. They say the exact number. But what I like most about his portrayal is that when he takes care of Miles, and he's like, okay, look, you've got to do this, you've got to go there, and you've got to turn this off, and that's how this has got to work, okay? Now you get out of here, kid. They're going to come after me. You get out of here. And they're like, okay. And that, well, that's Spider-Man right there, isn't it? He dies knowing that he saved one last kid, and that one last kid is going to help him to accomplish the mission. And you know what? That's okay. It sucks, <laughs> but it's okay. I suppose I should mention Wilson Fisk. Now, I'm going to go and admit something. Well, I absolutely praise most of the visual and audio designs of this film. I don't like Fisk. Visually, I mean. All of the rest of them I'm okay with. I mean, I know that we're dealing with variable versions of them. We see a, a Parker lizard, 
at one point. Yeah, that's messed up. Um, <clears throat> you know, obviously Green Goblin, as I already mentioned, the Prowler has his own variances, blah, 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 blah. I really didn't care for what they did with Fisk. He, uh, he looked out of place even in a cartoon, if you follow me. So I, I just wanted to comment on that briefly because I actually know several people personally who have refused to watch this film because they thought they wouldn't like the art style because they saw Fisk. Anyways, so then we have our first Prowler chase. This is interesting in its own right. Um, I already gave praise for the dimensional effects and the showcasing of how dimensional alterations happen, but I want to give special praise for the fact that, as I already mentioned, there's a bit of an audio thing and there's a light motif that actually plays for Prowler. It's it's probably the most obvious one. There are several others for several of the characters. But the Prowler motif is the most obvious one, and it plays just about any time he's on camera. And I only mention that in brief because it kind of helps to showcase... Uh, how do I phrase this? It helps to showcase not only the nature of the character, but to, to serve as a point later on. You'll also notice that Miles' approach is very much avoidance rather than confrontation. No, which is interesting, because it kind of gets back to one of the other core themes of just quitting and just running away from things, which, if you look at his life, is what he's doing across the board. Running away from his father, running away from his home, running away from his school, running away from his responsibility, blah, 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 blah. And, of course, running away from his powers in more ways than one. This is as good a time as any to talk about the pacing of the film, which is, of course, absolutely excellent. But what this film does is something that it's hard to properly describe, so I'm going to do this in a very stupid way. <clears throat> there are two films here running alongside each other. One is serious and heartfelt and amazing, and the other is hilarious and funny and amazing. Both of these films kind of splice into each other constantly. Let me give you a direct example. Music, music, okay. I'm gonna make the big jump. Music just suddenly cuts off and he's walking down the stairs. Then he looks up and he sees another building that's much shorter. Much shorter building. Okay, going back up the stairs. The film dips back in and out of comedy constantly, but it always makes sure to not delay on one side or the other too long. That's what I mean by pacing. And this is one of the things I've talked about. I've talked many, many times about how pacing needs to have a flow. You can't always be on. You can't always be off. You have to have some kind of variance. Otherwise, it becomes dull. It becomes noise, and the audience doesn't appreciate or enjoy it as much. See Call of Duty Modern Warfare 3 for a good example of bad pacing. So, I have to admit, this film made me laugh more than once. And I just wanted to comment that because, yeah. Oh, Also, you notice that the shoelaces really did end up screwing him up in the end, so that's nice. Oh, and he breaks the, what do you call it, the goober? Why would he call it a goober? Anyways, anyway. So then we encounter 22-year-old Parker. Aunt May is dead. He has no money, he has no life, and he has no wife. Okay, that's cool. That's probably one of the more brief but really depressing sections of the entire film. We see that uh, the person I'm going to henceforth refer to just as Parker, just for simplicity. So, Elder Parker, okay. We see, hence, uh, from this point onward, that Parker is, he is super not doing well. He is really, really not sure of his place in life, and he has no confidence, and he's constantly trying to force it. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> what I like about him, though, is he is still Parker. Absolutely. He is still Spider-Man. Without hesitation or question, he goes out of his way to try and save a complete stranger. Of course, he's Spider-Man. 
And of course, he does still know what he's doing. He's just, well, basically, this is a Parker who, one of the big things about Spider-Man has always been that he has no idea how to balance Parker with Spider-Man. This is a Parker who is more Spider-Man than Parker by a wide margin. He has effectively given up, quit, run away from his life as Parker and is instead just trying to pursue his life as Spidey, which I could see that, and frankly, I might even see the appeal of that, but you can kind of see how it, uh, well, it's kind of tearing him up inside, especially since apparently the whole point with with May, uh, it's not May, excuse me, with MJ, <laughs> too many names that are similar here, with, uh, with Mary Jane is the fact that she wanted kids. Now, this is interesting because in most of the continuities of the comics, Spidey actually can't have children, but let's not get into that. Although I know that's been retconned since then at least twice that I'm aware of. <sighs> Anyways, moving on. I do love the bit. Okay, so give me some advice. Yeah, okay, baby powder, especially at the joints. You don't want the chafing. Oh, yeah, disinfect the mask. <laughs> Pro tip. And you know what's funny is even though that's played as a joke, that's actually really good advice. You don't really see a lot of people giving advice on such mundane, everyday activities. You figure a Parker has been doing this for, what is it, 22 years? I actually wrote it down. Yeah, it's 22 years. Would know little things like that. <laughs> There's even this great bit where he's listening and he's, oh yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. It's always some big thing. Watch, the next thing he's going to say is, you've got 24 hours. You've got 24 hours. Yep, see, told you. <laughs> Every time. What I like about this Parker is that, while he obviously has the emotional and mental issues and the lack of life issues, the fact is he is still a Spider-Man vet. And it does show. He is basically on top of his game when it comes to the Spider-Man thing constantly, to the point where it's a joke to him, which it should be. You ever heard about the 10,000 hours of practice concept? Yeah, imagine how much practice Elder Parker has had at being Spider-Man at this point in time. Anywho, uh, so then we have the big reveal. Oh my god, it's Doc Ock. I I was amused by that. Uh, Excuse me, only my enemies call me Doc Ock. Which is funny, because later he calls her Liv, or something like that. I... I'm sorry. I have to point out some of these jokes. Okay, I'm going to be leaving the thing. Oh, there's a bunch of people act normal selecting bagel, because it was part of the plan. There we go. And as they're chasing him, he took a bagel! Get it! <laughs> because, of course, scientists working at a Fisk place are going to have giant laser guns all over the place. Why wouldn't they? It's Fisk. This is when Gwen shows up. Now, Gwen, of course, absolutely curb stomps Doc Ock, which makes sense because Doc Ock wasn't even where she was there. And Gwen is probably the most, I mean, she's got the acrobatics thing, you know, the the Olympic dancer, whatever background. She is easily going to be the most agile and probably the best in a one-on-one fight amongst the various uh, Spidey people, Spider people, Spider family, that we encounter throughout the course of this film. So, yeah, her crushing Doc Ock rather effortlessly doesn't really bother me that much. So we see her backstory. So, um, yeah, losing Parker as the lizard. Whew. That's, that's, that's kind of a heavy. And as usual, you know, there's always some tragedy and there's always some desire to keep going, blah, 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 blah. And we, we, we get the recurring gag, which is gonna get even worse in the, in the future here. <clears throat> but what I find interesting is that she and Elder Parker and Miles in a minute here, although he's not there yet, and all of the others, they're all broken. 
Now, I bring that point up because all of them are broken, and the one thing that, of course, defines Spider-Man as this film presents is the fact that they always get back up after being broken. In fact, it takes Elder Parker until the ending to finally get back up. Not as Spider-Man, as I already mentioned. He's fine there. But as Parker, when he finally decides to go back and reach out to, to Mary Jane, that's him not giving up. That's him deciding to get back up, metaphorically speaking. That's what defines Spider-Man. And I want you to keep that in mind, because getting back up, metaphorically speaking, means accepting the loss and trying to move through it in a constructive manner. I want you to keep that in mind, too. I'm building to a point here. So, uh, there's a bunch of really good scenes. I'm just kind of skipping through them. They're, this, this film's really, really good, and I can only partially do it justice. But what I can do is talk about how poor, poor, noir Spider-Man is colorblind. Is this one purple? No. Blue? No. <laughs> but... <laughs> Can I just say Nicolas Cage really nails it as Noir Spidey? Yeah, so we meet Noir Spidey, and we meet the other two. Um, oh, God, was it? Penny and Porker. There he is. I should try to remember their names really quick. Unfortunately, they're basically secondary characters, so we don't see as much of them. We don't even get their full backstory, although all three of them had tragedy, and all three of them got back up. I'm seeing a trend here. I do love the scene with May. This is another example of Elder Parker not being ready and not being willing to stand back up because he tries to run more than once from the encounter with Aunt May and he's just freaking the hell out. Of course, she recognizes him immediately and recognizes who and what he is immediately. And of course, this Parker had this giant underground lair. One of the recurring themes during the Spider-Man PS4 run we kept making fun of was how Parker had no money. And it was actually more complex than that. It was basically the idea of how they could have proper financial backing under the right circumstances, and the lack of proper financial backing is part of what was hindering Spider-Man's life, as well as Parker's life. So, you know, having the support of, for example, the Avengers and the infinite banks of Tony Stark would be helpful. It's just to name one example of what we're talking about. And he needs a financier, damn it! Well, it seems we finally found a Spider-Man that actually got a financier, because he's got a hell of a little lair going on there. Just pointing it out. It's also interesting, by the way, that this Parker, you know, Pine Parker, actually did have finances and resources and backing, whereas Elder Parker, who's been doing this for 22 years, which is longer, by the way, uh, didn't have anything. That is interesting to think about. Granted, he did blow a lot of money on that restaurant, but I'm sorry, restaurants aren't that expensive when compared to giant underground lairs. I know. Shocking. Anyways, uh, by the way, quick quick praise for Lily Tomlin. She plays Aunt May, and she does a wonderful job of it. She is just completely on top of everything and knows exactly what she's doing. She's the mother figure for all of them, and she does so so effortlessly. Just wonderful praise to her. So, um, looking at my notes here, <laughs> I do love how it's, it's noir. Spidey is just is just awesome. I'm, I destroy them, and I kill them. I'm in the dark blackness of blacky dark. I like killing Nazis a lot. It was just... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Moving on, moving on. Ah, uh, so... This is when we really have the big thing with Prowler. There's always some collateral damage here. You ever notice that? There's always collateral damage in these superhero things. Believe it or not, I'm already onto my second page of notes. I had a lot of notes for this film, but I'm kind of racing through these because there's so much to talk about. 
I try to be efficient nowadays and not have a lot of dead time, like right now when I'm talking about nothing, other than the fact that that audio cue I mentioned earlier. So obviously it plays extensively during the scenes where Prowler is going after Miles. And then Prowler sees him. Now what I find most interesting is, remember, this is a Miles who is still com in completely in over his head. He's afraid. He's scared. He, he has no confidence. He doesn't know who, where he is or what he is or why he is. So he reveals himself to Prowler. And Aaron picks up on it immediately and is like, whoa, and just stops himself like that. Aaron refuses to kill his, his nephew. Now, that may sound like a duh, but it, it's very important to keep that in mind because it serves as an excellent contrast. He looks at this and he's like, no, I'm, I'm not doing this. Like, Fisk, like, he freaks out at first. No, 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 because he knows he has, he has specifically had orders to take down and kill this particular Spider-Man, Miles, and he decides not to do it. And he seems kind of content when he does it. Miles, of course, flips the hell out. Quick aside, though, you'll notice that Prowler pulled his mask back on to make sure that Fisk wouldn't see who it was underneath there. Nice touch. So, Prowler takes him, excuse me, Miles takes Prowler, Miles takes Aaron, let's say what it is, and gets him to a place where he can just be like, oh my god. Takes the gauntlet off. You, know, you were always the best of us, kid. And this is, of course, when Jeff shows up, by what is effectively complete coincidence, since he was just responding, noticed the one spider person going off in the di distance and decided to go after that one. Which, of course, leads to him finding his brother dead and coming to completely the wrong conclusion in a bit of grief. I don't actually have much to say about all that, as horrible as that sounds. Miles losing Aaron obviously is a big hit to him. But what you notice is an even bigger hit to him, and I, they never actually say this, is the fact that his uncle that he looked up to so much was a supervillain. And you can see how much that hits him. You can see how much when he first, because he first realizes this a ways back, before Aaron realizes who Miles is, and he just flips out completely. That's when panic mode really hits. That's why he just runs to Aunt May's, because he doesn't know where else to go, what to do. He is completely in blind panic mode, because... Not because he's afraid for his life, but because his uncle is one of the bad guys. So this hits him like a ton of bricks and is important for something coming up. There's this bit where they all go to Miles' room where he's freaking out again. Gotta have a comedy sequence, comedy sequence, comedy sequence. Okay, there we go. They all, in the cave earlier, they all tried to push him with their own special talents to show that he, you know, to see what kind of talents he has. You know, he's got the electricity and he's got the uh, stealth thing. But more to the point, the point they keep hammering into him, rather inelegantly, I might add, is you have to keep getting back up. That's what it means to be one of the spider people. That's what it means to be part of that family. You have to be willing to get back up. In the end, you'll notice that the one who is pushing most for Miles to be part of this is the Elder Parker, the one who hasn't gotten back up yet, as I've already pointed out. You'll also notice that as they're trying to talk him into this in the in the room, as Elder Parker is there talking to him and trying to work through this, and just you know just does the sweep and grabs his shirt, they're all sitting right outside, eagerly listening. They want him to get through this. Of course they do. They're family. They're connected in a way that's actually basically impossible to exist in real life. Can you imagine? Do me a favor. Can you imagine for a moment that all the crap you've been through in your life all the good and all the bad and everything you've been through, and there's someone else out there who is in another dimension who is basically another version of you, and they have been through the same kind of crap. They understand you. 
in a way no one else can. Can you imagine what that would feel like, the kind of bond that would build? All of these people feel it, and the film does a very good job of showcasing that bond constantly. So, of course, he's not ready. He says, I want to do this because it's the right choice and because he made a promise. And all of those things are true, but he's not ready. He's forcing it. He's faking it. Choice and capacity are disaligned. How many times has that been true in real life, huh? How many times have you decided to do something and you can't? Think about that. His father comes by and talks to him. Of course, of course he's got the webbing. But when it, one of the things that's most awesome is his father stops faking it. His father gets back up. I love you. You don't have to say it back. I'm not going to fake it. I'm not going to force it. I'm not going to push you the wrong way. That is when Miles finds himself and realizes. And note that it's the... It's, it's kind of backloaded. You don't choose and then you become. You become so you can choose, right? So he gets up. <laughs> he goes, you know, get goes to May. Took you long enough. God, I love May's presentation in this. Um, and this is... I'm tearing up a little bit because this is really cool. Prowler's theme starts to play for Miles. But it's not actually Prowler's theme, if you pay attention. It's the same bass. Like, like Prowler's theme was always very basic. There actually wasn't much to it. In terms of musical composition, it was extremely fundamental. The song that plays for Miles is that bass accompaniment with a full song around it. Think about that. And the way they portray that is his theme now. I told you, I love the audio direction of this film. God, I can't believe this is hitting me this hard. Because, because Miles knows who he is at that point. He stops forcing it. He stops faking it. He gets back up. And he goes and helps out the crew. They, they've got the freak out with MJ. Fisk has the audacity to do a thing. I haven't talked about Fisk much. I've been building up to Fisk because I want to talk about Fisk. This is, in my opinion, the most evil Wilson Fisk I have seen in the various variations and forms of the kingpin that I have seen across television, comics, and movies. This man is a disgusting, despicable, horrible, complete monster. I would actually go so far as to say that there is nothing redeemable about him. Now, I know some people are going to argue that. He really loved his family. I don't think he did. I really don't. I think he thought he loved his family. I think he wanted his family, and I think something that was his was taken away from him. He was broken, just like the Spidey family was. He lost something. He lost someone, someone's actually, and that is a horrifying, traumatic event. But rather than coming out of it with the best of himself, like Gwen, or Parker, or Parker, or Miles, or Porker, or I forget what Noir's name was, you know, instead of coming out of it with the best of himself, he comes out of it with the worst of himself. He becomes fixated, obsessed, to the point of effective insanity. Even someone as intelligent and well-constructed and, and, and well as you might think the kingpin would be 
is destructively horrifying. Even knowing the consequences, he pushes forward because he hasn't gotten back up, because he refuses to. He doesn't accept it. He doesn't grow from it. He doesn't move on. Instead, he just lays there on the pavement, sobbing about how it's not fair and trying to make everything worse for everyone else because, by God, this is unacceptable. I am going to force this. I am going to change this. And even when he sees a fragment of some dimensional version of his family again, what does he say? Well, you can't leave me alone again. And then he turns immediately on Miles. You took my family from me. He is a complete monster, in contrast to, I'd say, most everyone else in the film who have varying levels of yeah, going on. Even Dr. Octavius was mostly just mad scientist with, honestly, not a lot underneath that. Scorpion was there, yeah, sure. Tombstone, he's just kind of there. No, the real comparison here is to Prowler, Aaron. Looking at Aaron, who, who who willingly, let's be honest with ourselves, he knew what was coming. He, he, he probably didn't know he was going to get shot right then and there, but he knew turning down this job and doing it for the sake of his nephew, that was going to cost him his life. He still did it, like that, without hesitation, as soon as he realized the reality of it. He even did it with peace. He, came, he, he, he accepted what he was doing. You think about that? What does Fisk do? This is why I think Wilson Fisk, despite his visual appearance, is so critical to this film. He is the diametric opposite of the Spider family. He does not move on. He does not give up. He does not grow. He stays down. He gives up. Hmm. The finale is awesome. Uh, love the Kirby dots, by the way. Nice touch. Uh... There's this great bit where Jeff's there. Ah, oh, it's getting me again. Where Jeff's like, you know, get up, Spider-Man. There's a nice scene earlier. I almost didn't catch it. Jeff spends almost the entire film saying, Spider-Man sucks. I hate him. He's a vigilante. He's wrong. He's terrible. When he gets news of the death of Spider-Man, he is shocked just like everyone else is. Just interesting to think about. Um, I actually don't have much to say about the finale. It, it's, it's exactly what you'd expect. There's a heartfelt goodbye. Everyone gets to go back where they came from. Going back to my question earlier, what if there were other dimensional yous that knew you and understood you and comprehended you? And you're never going to see them again, but you know they're out there. You know that, that you're not alone, basically. How would that feel, I wonder? <sighs> so, the film ends. We had a lovely Stan Lee thing. Unfortunately, Stan Lee had already passed by the time the film came out, but it was one of the final uh, Stan Lee cameos. And, uh, and we have uh, Oscar Isaacs as the 2099 Spider-Man. I hope we see more of him, because I like Oscar Isaacs in general, and 2099 Spider-Man you know, has a lot of potential there. And then, and then this scene, <laughs> I don't even have to say anything, do I? Of course, the film ends silly, because like I said, serious, silly, serious, silly, serious, silly. This was a really good film. I'm glad we're getting a second one. I hope it's as good. It doesn't need to be better. I just hope it is at least as good. Because there's a lot of potential here. And I'm very curious where they could take this going forward. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts on this, guys. I'll see you next time.